In this episode, staff writer Jessica explains how America became so car-centric, car-centricism's consequences, and the future of our cities. American designer Victor Papanik once said, Modern planners are so concerned about traffic that they have stopped thinking about anything but the fastest movement of cars and the attendant problems, as if the only function of the city is to serve as a racetrack for drivers between petrol pumps and hamburger stands. And while this is a bold statement, Mr. Papanek is anything but wrong. If a person cannot afford the exorbitant costs of the few mildly walkable cities we have in America, such as New York City, they're essentially chained to a car. In an idealistic world, we would be able to access all the things we need within walking distance. I could go grocery shopping and then walk back home and then take a stroll, all without having to go on four wheels. However, for much of America, that ease of walkability is nothing but a far-off dream. So, taking all of this into account, it's clear that continuing our car-dependent infrastructure is not in our best interest. But then, how do we fix it? Well, the idea I'll discuss today is to create walkable cities. Walkable cities are cities designed not around car usage, but pedestrian usage. Think of the cities in Europe, like London or Amsterdam, where someone can get all their basic needs without having to drive. The walk around the city is also quite pleasant and doesn't require crossing any major road of any sort. But then, with our car-centric infrastructure, how do we achieve the walkable cities? Well, I would say that the first step is to change the policies in our country that perpetuate car-centric infrastructure. Many cities have incredibly limiting zoning laws. The single-family zoning in residential and commercially used spaces really prevent people from actually being able to produce houses that have higher density and the building laws in our house in our country such as places having a maximum of a three-story building and a requirement of at least 50 parking spaces for that three-story building prevent really any building or walkability of any sort and of course, while one may argue that having more lenient policies regarding zoning or building would result in tremendous overcrowding in a city, like the Manhattanization of Fremont, the reality is actually far from that. For example, in Andersonville, Chicago, the city or the neighborhood features a combination of single-family greystones along four along with four flats and the occasional courtyard building. With all of that in mind, it's a relatively low-rise neighborhood with a relatively lower population density, certainly not the density you would see in downtown New York. However, Andersonville, Chicago is still able to store two large grocery stores, seven cafes, two comic book shops, two bookshops, 
a gym, and two large pharmacies, all within a 10 to 15 minute walk across the entire neighborhood. And now Andersonville, Chicago is a perfect example of how good urban planning in America could be created, how walkable cities in America could really be instated. And I think Andersonville, Chicago should be the ultimate goal that our country has in mind. And my second proposition is to create more centralized planning. So suburban sprawl is called suburban sprawl because of the lack of government plan to create suburbs. Essentially, developers can purchase a patch of land, create whatever housing they want, and go along their day without any regard to any form of transit, transportation, or just basically overall neighborhood vibes that their created suburb gives or offers. And of course, while there is currently debate on whether federal governments or local governments should intervene to create that centralized planning that we so desperately need, the argument still remains that we need more centralized planning to create neighborhoods that also feature good transit, housing density, amenities, and a well-designed and maintained sidewalks and crosswalks. You really can't have walkability without good planning throughout the entire neighborhood. And lastly, I'll talk about the cherry on top, design. So factors like a similar building height to street width ratio, enclosed spaces, trees for shade, and decorative spaces all give a feeling of coziness that makes walking just so much more pleasant. Imagine walking in an enclosed street and taking your time to admire the hanging lampposts and engraved buildings around you. It's certainly an experience that could be felt in Cambridge, England, but certainly not your average American suburb. Now, America wasn't always like this. It's important to know that suburban sprawl really began in the people's best interest. The housing shortage began during the Great Depression of the 1930s, when only the affluent could afford to purchase a home. And World War II further excavated the housing shortage when veterans came back. To remedy that, FDR signed the New Deal to create the nation's first public housing for civilians. Note that the New Deal's program largely excluded African Americans and other people of color. Unfortunately, the aftermath of the New Deal, coupled with the Federal Aid Highway Act of 1956, marked the end of large walkable centers as we know it, and marked the beginnings of a nationwide suburban sprawl. So, here we are today, with car-dependent infrastructure on every corner of this nation. And unfortunately, this car-dependent infrastructure of ours quite literally kills us. In the U.S., cars directly kill nearly 40k people per year. This is incredibly high compared to other developed countries. There are many factors causing vehicle deaths, though, such as pedestrian walkways being put alongside cars. But one factor I would like to point out in particular, a factor that we typically don't notice, is just how nauseatingly large roads are in the U.S. 
even a modest increase in street width from 24 feet to 36 feet makes roads four times as dangerous. However, car-dependent infrastructure is even more insidious than vehicle deaths. A pedometer analysis found that the typical American barely takes 5,000 steps a day, which is significantly fewer than residents of other countries in the study, including Australia, which has an average of 9,695 steps per resident every day, Switzerland, which has 9,650 steps, and Japan, which has 7,168 steps. And now that lack of just steps per day translates to higher obesity rates in America compared to most other developed nations. And obesity results in nearly a fifth of deaths among American adults ages 40 to 85. Car-dependent infrastructure also eviscerates the environment. Transportation also accounts for nearly 50% of all household carbon emissions in the United States, but those emissions vary greatly depending on cities or suburbs. Metropolitan areas emit roughly 50% below the average household emissions, while suburbs emit nearly twice the average household emissions. As we continue to spread out, we also plow down the natural ecosystems that were there before. Think about your backyard. Do you make an effort to recreate the natural biodiversity in your area or leave it as a green lawn? Do we continue to sprawl or do we continue to diminish our biodiversity? It's a question that at the moment doesn't have a particular answer. What I think is the most devastating about all of America's car-centric suburbia it's just how devoid of all life it is. In a way, it lacks all the factors that encourage walkability. Imagine trying to go out on a stroll on a crumbling sidewalk next to a highway under the intense afternoon sun. I mean, I could certainly do that, but it won't be pleasant at all. However, there are ways to remedy that. We can change our local policies, create more centralized planning, and change our city designs. It's just a matter of when they can be implemented. <laughs>